Welcome back to Notice That, an EMDR podcast where two licensed professional counselors and approved EMDR consultants discuss the latest research and resources for trauma treatment and EMDR therapy. Welcome back to Notice That, an EMDR podcast. Bridger and I are in the studio today, and we're very excited because we have a special guest with us. We're going to be interviewing Gary Brothers, who is a therapist in Austin, Texas, and he's also a trainer and has a uh, specialty of treating pain and chronic health conditions, and we're going to talk about um, the important distinction there of chronic pain and chronic health conditions and why that's relevant to us as trauma therapists. So we're really excited to have this conversation with Gary and give you guys, the listeners, um, kind of a window into a different application of EMDR than we're usually introduced to in the basic training and really kind of explore um, where the research is right now with understanding the application of the treatment of trauma with all kinds of conditions um, in the human body and the human organism, um, which you know here at BHC is a big deal to us. We spend a lot of time talking about it. And so we love talking to other practitioners and clinicians that think the same way, that care about the same things, and that really conceptualize what we do as therapists as bigger than just talking about feelings, um, but really understanding the human as a whole organism. So Gary, thank you so much for being here. Oh, it's a pleasure. It's an honor to be here. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, I was was very excited to take your training. Um, That was sometime in August or July. I can't remember now. Very end of July. Yes. Very end of July. Yes. Time flies. <laughs> sure does. Um, yes. But um, yeah, I, uh, Melissa actually forwarded me the information for your training um, and said, you know, this would be a great uh, idea for you uh, if, or for one of us kind of sent it to the group. And I said, I would love to take that um, pain in the brain. Um, is something that uh, just ever since I started kind of working at one of the holistic um, healthcare clinics here in town was something that I knew had just a, such a profound impact on not just um, the experience of pain in people, but also the way they understand themselves, the way their body uh, feels, the way their body works, the way their brain is built over time, and uh, knew that pain was something that um, had more to it than just, uh, doc, when I bend my elbow like this, it hurts. Um, and the doc says, well, don't do that anymore. (laughs) And that's, there's a lot more to it when it becomes chronic. And especially when there's not an obvious underlying, uh, medical condition, when it's something that's clearly got, uh, a large, uh, psychosomatic or just larger psychological, uh, kind of reinforcement or prosymptomology. So I was very excited to kind of read through some of your material, Gary, and see that that's kind of where you were heading as well in your thinking. And, and you put that together in a, in an advanced credit EMDR training. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know, Gary, if you want to just kind of briefly lead into if there's anything you want the listeners to know right now, or, or just kind of starting this conversation of chronic pain, chronic health syndromes, all of these things. Well, wow. Yeah, sure. Um, you know, first of all, I guess the, the main thing that we want to start with is that, you know, we experience pain, you know, it's a full body experience, but the actual experience of pain isn't in the body, it's in the brain. And it's, it's a, the, we, without our brain, we can't experience pain. You know, so that's a relay system from the body to the brain, but it's in the brain. 
where the actual sensations of pain occur. It's a relay system, of course, through the peripheral nervous system. If I twist my ankle or I have a, you know, a bum knee or, or, or even back pain, but it's that relay system from those nerves that communicated up to the brain. It's in the brain though, it's at these different, you know, substructures in the brain that, that, that the experience of pain is. And so without actually understanding that, you know, really intimate connection between, you know, the body and the brain, you know, we talk about the mind-body connection, but the, the mind is, as, as I say, and the training is an extension of the body and the mind is a full body experience. But when that relay system hits the brain, that's when we experience pain. And so when we understand like chronic pain versus acute pain, we have to understand that these are two different kinds of pain. And as a therapist who works with the, you know, people who've had pain for such a long time, that chronic pain, that we have to look at how that body has changed and how the brain has changed over this long period of time. And so we got to stop treating pain as if it's, you know, just a knee injury or a back injury or inflammation here. Yes, those are all pieces of it, but we have to look at what's happened in the brain and how the brain has changed over this course of time. And then interventions, you know, have to be tailored to, you know, that long-term changing of the brain. And as a result, all these systemic changes in the body. And that gets to, you know, this idea that I tell everybody that, uh, you know, I don't look at pain as, you know, you know, pain generators or injury in the knee or even a disc issue in the back, but, you know, pain is a syndrome state in, in chronic health conditions or, you know, diseases or disorders and you know, autoimmune disorders, that these are all syndrome states in the body. And we have to look at it from that syndrome perspective. Yeah. Syndrome states are something you talked quite a bit about in the first um, kind of half of day one of the training to kind of set the mind uh, of the participants down the track that you want them to understand what you're saying. So could you say a little bit more about syndrome states? Yeah. Okay. So first of all, the body is innately wired to be a healthy system. And so the body has one big system made up of all these other systems, you know, you know, the nervous system, the endocrine system, the inflammatory system, but then the body is one collective whole. And so a syndrome is when there's breakdown in that collective whole, but to remember that the body is innately wired to be health, healthy, okay, a state of health. It's working for us all the time, but then things get in the way, things go awry. There's the, you know, blocks or barriers that, that can cause, you know, the body from, to go from a state of health to, to states of unhealth. And I use that word state very, you know, deliberately. So what is, go, what is causing the body to go from the, the state of health to unhealth? And then we have breakdown and disruption in these systems. And so a syndrome is, you know, where there's this collection of circumstances, okay? And these circumstances can be, you know, multifactorial, but there's these collection of circumstances that together create an outcome that, that can be destructive or goes against health, well-being, and life. And that's what I'm talking about. And so with, with chronic health conditions, you know, or chronic pain, you know, there's these syndrome states of unhealth or disruption in the body that, that, that can be multifactorial. It could be both external factors that then disrupts things internally in the body. Now, there could be injuries to the body. 
um, that, that happen, but there can also be, you know, life events that, that cause disruption in our body systems. And then over time, these disruptions have these long reaching effects and multifactorial effects in the body that shift the body from these states of health and move them towards states of unhealth. And we have to look at all these different pieces of a puzzle that are happening at once. You know, they, 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 these simultaneously things that are occurring. And that's what we start to do when we, we, we look at treating chronic pain and these chronic health conditions. And we wanna look at these two things separately, you know, but we look at all these different pieces of the puzzle that are occurring at once that's causing breakdown in the overall body system. And when we start to look at all the different pieces of the puzzle, then we need to, uh, you know, look at and understand each. And then we develop treatment interventions that are then, you know, deconstructing that, that syndrome state of unhealth to then shift the body back into states of health, you know, by looking at each, you know, puzzle piece, so to speak, you know, and, and, and you know, bringing the body back systemically back to, to shifting back to health. And that's what we want to do, you know, with EMDR and, and other, you know, interventions that we're doing, but looking both externally outside of the person and then also internally. And because that's how we live life, you know, the outside environment affects the inside environment, the inside environment is going to then affect how we operate, how we engage in relationships, how we do roles, you know, how we function in life and, and, and you know, all the things that, you know, with our, our relationships with our significant others, with our family and so forth. So we want to see how these this dynamic is occurring, you know, the inside world and the outside world, both how it's affecting us and then we're navigating and walking through it, if that makes any sense. It absolutely does. So I have like several questions in my head just as you're talking. <laughs> so I'll, I'll kind of say more than one, and then we can kind of pick together which one we start with. So one question that I have is, how did you as a therapist come to have this as your focal point? Because it is pretty unique. I mean, such a huge need. But as a you know traditionally trained therapist, this isn't an area that we're um, maybe encouraged to focus on a lot as mental health clinicians. Um, it's kind of in the name, mental health clinicians. <laughs> so I'm curious, like, how did you find your way to the body in such a profound way? And then also, how does EMDR uh, become part of that story kind of in your own evolution as a clinician? How did you make these connections of, oh, okay, I'm going to start focusing in this way um, on the way that the environment is impacting the whole human organism and the way that that presents itself? And then how did EMDR get mixed into that as well. I'm, I'm betting there's an interesting story here is why I'm asking. In these two small questions, oh, just questions. Yeah. small questions. Yeah. T tell us your life story, Gary. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, the easy answer is I fell ass backwards into it. Like Perfect. That's the okay. best way to find your way to anything, I think, at least the honest way. <laughs> so, um, you know, I've, I'm, I'm from, you know, I'm not originally from Austin. I actually, I, I did my, uh, I'm originally from outside of Chicago and I did my, you know, graduate training there. Um, and my passion originally was working with teenagers, you know, um, you know, adolescents and some young adults. I, I, I worked with a lot of inner city kids there and kids coming from rough backgrounds. Um, and then my wife and I, we, we lived in Hawaii for a long time and worked with a lot of adolescents there. Um, some you know, have my background. My first 16 years was working with 
um, you know, adolescents in pretty rough environments from psych hospitals to residential treatment centers, treatment centers where they brought kids from all over the country, even outside of the country um, with severe emotional behavioral issues. Um, and I also did some work with reactive attachment disorder kids. And, and with that um, was, I was, uh, you know, deep attachment focus. And as a trauma therapist, you know, when you're working with behaviorally challenged kids, uh, you know, they, at that time, it was horrible, emotionally and behaviorally disturbed, they called them, which was such an awful terminology, but it's just really severe attachment disruption. And, uh, you know, from, you know, we, we all know the ACEs, uh, you know, adverse child experience scale, I mean, kids with just high ACEs scores. And um, so both in, you know, the, the Chicago area, and then, you know, in Hawaii, working with kids with, you know, all sorts of, you know, trauma, 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 I really was fortunate to work with some, you know, really good um, trauma, trainers and educators and therapists who taught the, you know, attachment from a full body perspective and, and also the, the importance of dyadic work with parents and systemic work. And, and my training um, was through the University of Illinois at Chicago um, and, and Jane Adams College of Social Work, which was a hugely systemically focused educational program. So uh, my, my, my graduate studies was always looking at systems perspective, but at that time it was external systems um, and, and, and seeing that interrelationship between, you know, uh, the, the, the more finite systems, but then the larger systems, the community so you, systems. You were kind of primed to think systemically. I was, I was trained sense. to think systemically. Yeah. It was really drilled into us in my graduate training. And then when I moved to Austin, I ended up working for, a, a, I'm not gonna say names here, but it's really, it was an intensive uh, residential treatment center outside of Austin in a, in a town uh, not too far. And I was there for two years and I, and I was new to Austin. I didn't really have established myself. I was established in Hawaii after living there over a decade and came here and and I saw this ad working for a, a chronic pain company. And I was like, hmm, that's interesting stuff. I, I don't know anything about it. And, and, and it was actually working with one functional restoration company that was like doing, you know, non-medication, non-surgery, group work, you know, kind of uh, getting people functioning. It was all workers comp and then the, the same owners of the company were working with a, a traditional pain um, management with, with more medication, opiates, injections, mm -hmm. surgeries, and so forth. So completely different models of care, but owned by the same company or the same doctors. And they were using the same behavioral health department. And I uh, interviewed for that, said, I don't know anything about this. This would be a complete paradigm shift and change for me. And, and I said, what the heck, let me go interview for them. And I ended up liking the therapists in that, on the team. And so I took the job there and that was my introduction. And I saw these two competing models of treating people with pain. And I saw with the, the, the clients, these are the kids that I've been working with for the last 16 years who never got better and what happened to their bodies when they never get better. 
And that was my introduction. And, and, and with these two competing models, I saw, okay, the, the psychotherapeutic interventions have great you know, impact in helping people and you don't necessarily need, in fact, the opiates and all that and learned a whole lot about why those don't work and why they were never intended to work for chronic pain. And this was in the middle of the opiate crisis which is still going on by the way. And all these surgeries and interventions that they're doing medically that's making people tons of money but aren't necessarily enriching people's life or getting them back into functional lifestyles. Mm -hmm. And, and that's when I kind of, um, and I was previously trained with EMDR in Hawaii, but I was, I will say not trained well. Mm -hmm. And that's where I met my mentor. Uh, yes. And then I met my mentor here in, in Austin, uh, Rick Levinson, who's, uh, you know, an amazing human being, amazing EMDR trainer and amazing, you know, EMDR mentor. And I really learned it um, well. And that's when I also, during that time, went to Mark Grant's training and, and learned the pain protocol, which was a game changer for me in working with this client. And that's when I went down the rabbit hole too, of I need to know, you know, why EMDR works so well. And also the, the really the neurobiology, you know, because Rick Levinson is so much into the neurobiology of EMDR and, and that's just how my brain works. And now I want to know everything there is to know about pain. And when I started just doing my own research on pain and then, and I've, and, and that's where I, you know, go down those rabbit holes of reading journals, reading, you know, uh, all these things about, you know, inflammatory systems, you know, uh, immune systems and so forth. And that's where my training, you know, kind of evolves from. Yeah. So following your own curiosity. Uh -huh. Yeah, I never intended to, to actually be a trainer uh, for <laughs> EMDR and chronic pain. Um, I just needed to figure it out so I could help my clients. And then Rick Levinson, my, my mentor said, well, you really need to share what you know right it's time time for you to tell other people since you've been doing all this reading and research and we appreciate it <laughs> and it took him a couple of years of pushing and prodding <laughs> convincing right. yeah i'm familiar with that <laughs> yes so was the the model of care that you presented in your chronic pain um training was that the 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 model that you were using with with this population did that develop over time yes it was it's what i found uh, through uh, you know, all this reading and research, I came across so many different pieces. Again, I, when you look at the syndrome, uh, all these pieces of what's going on with people. And, and so I, as I say, I steal from so many different people. I, I want to give them credit, okay, yes. you know, but I steal. From, and that's where I really believe is that with whatever we're doing as therapists is that, you know, we tend to be reductionists, okay? We find what works for us. And then we say, okay, this is what I'm going to do. But that's really, you know, I really believe that science should be a reflection of nature. Mm. Okay. And, and because what nature shows us is that there's all these things occurring at once and, and they're not one and then the other, but they're all these things happening at the very same time simultaneously. And all these wonderful models that we have in our field, but all these models in, in health, that all these things are happening at once. And when we look at pain and, 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 and health states and, you know, the autoimmune disorders, the chronic health conditions, that, that there's all these things going on the body at the very same time. And again, the body is one system made up of many, and there's these multiple systems and networks happening at once. And so 
the model of care through understanding these, there's all these things happening. And so putting the model that I've been, you know, constantly evolving and, and the first, you know, training that I've put together is with chronic pain primarily, these are all the things you know, obviously you, you can't be entirely in, inclusive, but the main components of what's happening with chronic pain and how it breaks down the body and then what we can do about that to, again, bring the body back to states of health. And so including in that, the EMDR pain protocol and then the EMDR standard therapy protocol, looking at neuroplasticity, looking at how the body's you know, because of pain and because of the things that, you know, have kind of contributed to the develop of pain, it stays in this, you know, the nervous system stays in these activated states of, you know, sympathetic arousal, or maybe going then into collapse, but then how that affects inflammatory system, the neurochemical systems. Okay. And then that creates, you know, nerves that are going to stay in the on position, what we call you know, long-term potentiation. That's just meaning nerves that get turned on and won't turn off. Okay. And then, you know, other things that are involved and I don't necessarily need to get too far into the, yeah, I'll be doing the two day training, there but, we but go. Then, 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 but you know, things like nerve gates get turned yeah. on and, and how all these you know, negative feedback loops develop and, and then they perpetuate. And then, you know, again, then other things are happening again, the internal system, but then how external factors around the person's life as they, you know, develop pain, they, they lose jobs, you know, relationships suffer. And then those negative feedback loops perpetuate what's happening internally. And then there's breakdown that leads to more breakdown that leads to more breakdown. Right. And this is something that I so love about this way of thinking, because when you start to view things through syndrome states and you start to see how the brain actually processes lived experience and then it kind of incorporates that into its ongoing development, you start to really get a thorough case conceptualization model or case conceptualization strategy because what you're saying right now about pain gates and and the the neural pathways of experiencing sensory motor affectivity or something like that that's that's coming through more than just pain that's that's lived experience as a whole pain just being one means of experiencing that absolutely and to realize that even how we experience pain is based on our our previous life experiences. Yes. And that's not psychology, that's psychophysiology. Our somatosensory system is going to be, you know, our previous experiences in life are going to prime our somatosensory system on how we're going to experience pain right now. Yes. So we have to look at how the nervous system has developed over the course of a lifetime. Yes. You're saying a lot of very exciting things right now, Gary. <laughs> so, so I don't know, oh gosh, I think it was three or four years ago now, which seems impossible to me, but I think it was about four years ago at the Andrea conference in one of the big plenary sessions. Um, oh gosh, what's his name? Is it Martin Mark Titcher? Titcher. Mm -hmm. Titcher. Yeah. So, uh, Martin Titcher, who, uh, teaches at Harvard and a few different universities, he presented his research about one of the potential theories about, um, you know, the neurobiology of EMDR, but as an aside in that conversation, um, he talked for a few minutes about something that I found to be the most important thing that I heard at the whole conference, which is the, the research that is beginning to indicate that the type of trauma that a human experiences has direct nerve damage in a very long lasting way. 
um, that we had no idea and no way of really evaluating previous to the, you know, the research that is being done, like still being done. And, you know, maybe in the last five years, this is very, very new. So as an easy example of that, it would be uh, for children that grew up in an emotionally abusive home where there was a lot of yelling, a lot of screaming, a lot of, um, words, right, and noises that created uh, states of fear and panic and terror in the human body, that they actually saw a change in the way that their auditory nerves process sound for the rest of their life and produced a difficulty with interpreting the human voice, like hearing it and being able to really incorporate the words. And so um, he said that this is a precursor to the diagnosis of uh, ADD, ADHD, kids that traditionally have a hard time hearing, listening instructions, et cetera. These sensory motor yeah. processes, yeah. Yeah, and and that was one of many examples for, for children that had sexual abuse in their history. You know, their, their nerves in the area of their body that had been abused and hurt um, were longitudinally damaged and changed in the way they can process uh, sensory information from those areas of their body. And so uh, what you're saying reminds me very much of that and feels like kind of the continuation of that conversation of not only do we know that environmental experiences are shaping specific nerves in the way those nerves process information coming into the body and how it's interpreted by the brain, but then how do we begin to support the body in letting go of some of that strategy? Which is a question that I, I have. I mean, certainly, you know, say lots of comments to what I just said, but kind of my, my follow-up question to all of that is how do you view um, chronic pain or syndrome states and or syndrome states of the human body as a strategy of survival in response to trauma? Like, why does our body do this? I guess is the kind of the boiled down question. Um, because the the organism's response to trauma is always about survival. And we maintain those strategies in the long run because our body is still quite afraid that we could be faced with the same threat again. So I'm really curious if, if you've read anything or come across anything or really just kind of have any of your personal clinical insight into why does the body hold on to syndrome states and chronic pain as a strategy potentially of survival to deal with all the trauma of our of our past i hope that makes sense it makes great sense well and and, and now we're, we're we're okay we're diving in now if that's okay <laughs> okay so so i'm gonna so now we want to look at things and, and integrate things, what we know about attachment, what we know about polyvagal theory, okay, and the AIP model, but also even um, how the body works with, with perception. And by perception, I'm going to break that down into, you know, exteroception is how we take in, a, you know, external sensory information, but then interoception, which is then our somatic responses to that, you know, the, the sensory aspect of that. And, 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 and then models, which are interest me greatly with, 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 you know, predictive coding and coding errors and things like that, which is great research that, that's been, we're looking at more and more um, you know, and Neil Seth is a neuroscientist. I, I follow a lot of his research on that. Um, but, but so, 
to your question is is understanding okay so so how what are these these i call them gears of the neuro nervous system when we look at polyvagal theory when we we have the social engagement system but then what happens when we have you know these threat and what you're describing is you know how the body responds to threat so you know we have these other two gears which is you know, the adrenal sympathetic, the, this mobilization in, in, in threat, and then the, the, the you know, dorsal vagal, that, that, that immobilization in danger, okay? And then, again, we, we, we don't look at this from a, a psychological or even just a nervous system perspective, but through all these, you know, multiple systems and networks, again, happening at once, okay? You know, and then when, when we say... I'm going to, I would, not that I'm thinking I'm smarter than the, the plenary you know, professor from, you know, Harvard. Go ahead. This was several years ago and research is guaranteed to have changed. <laughs> just the way my brain works. I, I, I wouldn't say nerve damage. I would say nerve changes. Yes. Okay. Cause, cause my model always is the body is wired to heal. Okay. And that's one of my fundamental principles that I operate. Okay. Maybe that's for me to be hopeful, but, but I do believe that. And so it's, so the, the nerves change, but the nerves can change back, but we have to have a safe environment around that, but we can also have, and this is where the AIP model comes in because of this, you know, maladaptive, you know, at least stored information in the body that, and then we can have mismatches, which this is where the, the, the predictive coding comes in, where our interiors, we have this, our implicit body has stored all this information that says the world is dangerous. And so now I'm adapting to that. And so these are adaptations of what you're talking about. And, and now if the world becomes safe, I can still be holding on I'm still holding on to all this information. And this is what we know about the, the AIP or the information processing system. If we don't resolve that, okay, and this is where as EMDR therapists, it's so exciting, is we need to resolve this, then, and that's how we heal because information processing is happening all the time. But, you know, as EMDR therapists, we often want to rely on this adaptively stored information that's already in the body that we can now attach to, to heal these trauma networks. Now, what happens if we don't have, you know, an abundance of adaptively stored information in the body that then the body, you know, gets stuck. And this is where, you know, my, my newer training is coming is, is looking at these, you know, internal subjective neural templates, okay, that we get to and based on, you know, these early attachment disruptions. And so now we're going to dive into a little bit of attachment, you know, theory where, where we have, you know, the attachment system, which is really dependent on two pieces of that. We have the attachment behavioral system, which is the the care receiver, I call it the caretaker. Okay, I take care from my my my, my, my caregiver. Okay, the, the parent or you know the mother, the father, whoever is the caregiver in that. And so the caregiver and the caretaker, but the caretaker is the care receiver. Okay, now the, the care the attachment behavioral system. There's three goals of it. One is that proximity or closeness. Okay, I need to be close physically or emotionally to, to the caregiver because without that, I'm going to perish, especially in infancy and childhood. But even that emotional, as a, you know, whether it's couple or family or even community or tribe, you know, we need that sense of closeness to others. 
and, and these are hardwired. These aren't psychological systems. These are hardwired in us. Yeah, biological systems. Absolutely. And, and, and so, and, and, and we do that, you know, through, you know, interaction bids and, and, and approach behaviors. Now, that's the first goal is that closeness. And the second goal is, you know, it, it provides us a secure base for good to go explore and experience the world. Okay, and so I, you know, I, I know that you know, I can go out there and know that I have this closeness, and if I get a little wigged out, I'm going to run back and, you know, you know, recharge and regroup, and then go back, and that's how we start to go experience the world, and then and through that closeness and that you know secure base, that's how I learn to regulate my emotions, and without that, I get emotionally dysregulated, and this is all incorporated. And that's how I get it. And again, we, we tied this to AIP. This is information processing. This is how I get, you know, these adaptively stored, you know, information in my implicit, in my interoceptive states. It's somatic because interoception, that's a precursor for emotion. Okay. And we have to realize that is that. I get this adaptively stored information, these memory networks throughout my body, you know, in my tissue, in my organs, in my peripheral nervous system. Okay, that's what I rely on to feel safe emotions, to regulate emotions. Now, that's a, an attachment behavioral system, but I, there's also a caregiver behavioral system that's innately wired, and that's the caregiver, and that's through our empathy circuits. That's why we have these empathy circuits, is so that we notice that those that we're responsible for, where the attachment figures for, when they get upset, when they have emotional distress, or they have approach behaviors, those attachment interaction bids, that we respond to them. We get upset as they get upset. That's part of co-regulation. Now, the problem is, is that caregivers can suppress their caregiving system. Mm -hmm. And yes, yeah, so that's where attachment disruption, attachment trauma occurs because the already activated, you know, person in that dynamic, that dyad, when the caregiver suppresses their attachment system, that that activated, they're gonna go now get hyperactivated. They're gonna get hyper aroused and, and potentially disorganized and, and then go into states of disorganization, disorientation, or they'll go into then that collapsing into hyper arousal. And this is where polyvagal comes in. Yeah. Okay. And so, now if there's a, yes, go ahead. Oh, sorry, the, what I, just to kind of sum up, um, this is kind of the way that we, we talk about it as well. Um, in our case conceptualization model that we learn to regulate affect through our lived experiences as infants in receiving care from what you would call the caregiver. Mm -hmm. um, and that therefore it's very important to look at the kind of quality frequency dynamic of that uh, caregiver caretaker relationship. I hope I'm using your words correctly mm -hmm. um, to, to look at that dynamic because the way the caregiver is as that role greatly affects the way that caretaker is shaped over time. Absolutely. And now if there's this patterned response, either through inconsistent or, or, or chronic absence of caregiving, this is where those templates are going to develop. And those templates aren't just going to be a way of responding to others in relationships, but it's going to, this is where psychoneuroimmunology yes. comes in. 
forming expectations, sense of self, all of these things. Yeah. But, but also the way that the, the endocrine system is going to operate, the yes. way the immune system is going to operate. And then it's the way going to, the whole body is going to react to the world. Okay. So I would love for you to talk more about that because they're in uh, one of the trainings that we do actually in two of the different trainings, we, I, I uh, kind of make a side comment about this reality that uh, there is a huge overlap between people that have had um, a lot of uh, abuse in their childhood and endocrine disruption of some kind. Uh, and that can take, you know, lots of different forms, but, you know, there's many different syndromes or autoimmune conditions that have a huge parallel with uh, early life trauma and a high ACEs score, et cetera. And I, I don't spend a lot of time on it because that's not the focal point of the training, but every time we talk about it, people are so interested in this because they see it. They see it in their practice that, um, you know, this amazingly high percentage of women that have sexual abuse in their history or sexual assault in their history are showing up with infertility, subfertility, um, other kinds of hormonal disruptions like PCOS and things like that. And we, we can tell intuitively that there is a connection, but I feel like what you're saying is you're, you're highlighting the actual neurobiology behind what that connection is. And so if you can, I would love for you to talk more deeply about why does the body, um, respond in that way to environmental threat that does not necessarily look real obvious on the surface of why these things would be connected, but intuitively we know they are. So can you shed light on why? Absolutely. Okay. So, so first of all, we, when we, we, we all know about the HPA axis, right? The hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis. But first of all, those are part of the endocrine system. Okay, the hypothalamic pituitary gland and the adrenal glands are all part of the, uh, um, the, the endocrine system. Okay, so that's really important, first of all, to realize and that the endocrine system, you know, there are all these glands in our body that are basically telling the body what to do. And so when we have that constant activation of the endocrine system, that, that we're not only, you know, everything works on habituation in the body. Okay. So, so when we're constantly activating that we're, we're disrupting the endocrine system. Now it's out of balance. And so it's, it's, it's so, so it's not working in this balanced way and, and it's going to be primed that way. But it, also every time that we get activated by the HPA activator and a stress response, okay. We're, we're also creating what's called a sickness response in the body. And a sickness response is where, where we get a very slight raise in our temperature. And this is the way our, see our immune system, both our innate immune system and, and what's called our adaptive immune system. Our innate is just the, the, the basic one. And our adaptive immune system is that's responding to specific you know, pathogens and antibodies. And that's you know, with the COVID-19. That's why we're getting you know, vaccines and antibodies. You know, that's our adaptive immune system responding to specific pathogens, but every time that we get activated, you know, our immune system is kicking in and it's meant to protect us. Okay. But, but every time that that's happening, we're having, you know, this, this, you know, specific, you know, response or, you know, we are changes in our liver metabolism and we have these, we often think of it. In fact, in my first training, I talk about it as side effects of stress chemicals, but it's really, you know, because, you know, histamine and cortisol, they both serve an immunological function. 
you know, that changes, you know, our insulin blood sugar balance, it, it, you know, it changes, you know, uh, how we, you know, go out and, and seek, you know, you know, food and water and, and explore the world, you know, sexual activity and so forth. But it also, we have this active activation of pro-inflammatory cytokines in the body and the brain. And so there's this whole reaction that happens just as if we had, you know, an infection, and that's just from stress. And so what happens over time is that that activation of stress, you know, because of this, you know, bi-directional feedback loop, body, the brain, and then the brain actually releases more pro-inflammatory cytokines that then, you know, tell the body to release more. And so we, so every time we, we, we you know, the stress circuits primes the body for infection, and then the infections prime the body for more stress. And so we're, we're getting this- a cycle, right? So the body is getting easier and easier to get sick over stress, yeah. and so 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 there's all you know, and 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 not only that, but when we look at autoimmune disorders, you know, histamine is a critical player. We've known since about the mid '90s that histamine is tied to autoimmune disorders. We didn't really know why, mm-hmm. but since around 2007, 2008, we've realized that you know histamine you know, through what's called the major histocompatibility complex, which is, you know, that it's tied to changing um, the DNA and, and what's called our T cells and B cells, which, you know, you know, usually they're, the T cells are, are what attack, you know, the pathogens in our body if there's some sort of infection or, you know, foreign invader in our body. But with autoimmune disorders, the T cells and B cells attack you know, you know, the, the body itself when there is no foreign invader. And we, we brought say, well, why does that happen? We, we always chalk it up to gene, you know, genes, you're, you know, you have a, you're, you're genetically predisposed to RA or, you know, Sjogren's or something that runs in the family. But really what happens is that, you know, with, with, with these high histamine, which is a stress chemical, of course, you know, is that is that somehow that the T cells and B cells are changing their genetic code. And we believe it's because of this, what's called this major, you know, the, the histocompatibility complex molecule that, that is changing, allowing the, the, these T cells and B cells to change their genetic code, which then now it, it starts to attack its, the body itself. It's what's called self versus non-self discrimination. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so, and so we don't understand exactly all that, but when that happens, then, you know, then that's what, when we are predisposed for that, then, then, you know, there is a genetic component, but, but, but genes get, can, can get turned on, genes can get turned off, but it's all these, you know, again, the systemic state in the body and the syndrome state, because, you know, we have all these things happening at once, you know, and so. Well, and, and the the science of epigenetics would say that i could inherit it from a family member but that doesn't necessarily mean that it is not originated from a traumatic experience it means that it was passed down through the lineage because of some environmental situation that changed the genetic expression in my ancestor and now i'm inheriting that gene expression absolutely and you know with 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 you know epigenetics too is that that you know some genes they're going to be we have what's called the genome which is everything it's that possibly could get 
manifested in my, you know, in my, you know, I look at like genomes or, or, or the genotype is, is, is everything that, that's in my, the, the possibility that I could manifest. It's, it's like going to a restaurant and, and here's everything you could order at the, the restaurant, but, but not everything that you would. Now, then we have a phenotype is what you do order. And that's based on experience. Okay, what I experience is, is what's going to manifest. Okay, and, and so, you know, there's so much that doesn't get manifest that could be in our genes, mm -hmm. but, but we need those experiences. And so those traumatic life events is going to cause these specific genes that, that could be in my genetic makeup make up to manifest. So it's really nurture plus nature, not nature, Absolutely. you know, plus nurture. I, th I think it's, it's, um, kind of at least uh, in, in the way that we're talking about it, it's important to, to direct attention to how uh, consciousness plays into this, where um, your awareness of these processes comes from. And in a couple of our trainings, we talk about the brain in terms of primary, secondary, and tertiary processes, primary being in the brainstem and, and the old reptilian brain, the uh, secondary processes being in the mammalian brain and the tertiary processes being in the, the neocortex or the, the rational brain. And these are not happening in the rational brain. Um, I just want to like, just to kind of just say the obvious, but it's important to direct attention because the brain develops from bottom to top, but then the top down processes still, like you were saying, kind of reinforce that loop. Um, but the, the top of the brain is only getting the information that's sent to it from the bottom of the brain. Absolutely. Right. Yes, absolutely. So I feel like we could talk for a really long time about the neurobiology of all of this, and I really, really want to, but I also want to make sure that we talk about some of the, the practical application of this for clinicians and therapists, because, um, you know, for those of us that spend a lot of time in the land of research and training and things like that, having a really, uh, yeah, deep understanding of the neurobiology behind all of this and the way that, uh, you know, the science is moving and research is going to really conceptualize this in a way that, you know, as mental health clinicians, we have not been for a very long time. And to me, that's very exciting. And it's a huge part of what we do here at BHC is to help people reconceptualize all of the different, different presentations that we see. But I'm curious if you can talk about, you know, as, as we look at all of this information, how do you take it into the clinical setting with your clients? And I'm very curious, how much of this do you share with your clients? Like how much education do you give them about the reactions and responses of their own body to their trauma and help them uh, kind of integrate that information? So I give them bits and pieces over time. Okay. Now I'm a firm believer that, that we need to share some information with our clients because their their brain their their mind they need to understand what's going on and and because once you give information they can't not have it anymore and and having information i'm a firm believer that we need an adaptive you know accurate and cohesive narrative to our life mm -hmm. yeah coherent and cohesive <laughs> Yes. And, and so, and they often come from a history that's been really inaccurate and idealized mm -hmm. because we really want to have a life story that, that, that is somewhat happy, you know, or we blame ourselves for, for, for the, you know, because we, we, 
we want a sense of control in life. And, and if, if, and, and so we often, you know, err on the side of blaming ourselves because it gives us a false sense of control. Mm -hmm. If I would have done that, then, then it, I'm the problem. There we go. Yeah. And therefore I can avoid it in the future if I change what I do. Yeah. Yeah. Or, or even if I couldn't have changed it, at least it's my fault. So therefore there is a sense of control and it yeah. doesn't make sense. Sometimes there's no mystery. It's right. Me. So, so I often tell people, I, I'm not in the blame game at all, but we want to look at cause and effect. For instance, if there's, you know, you know, I used, often use the word malnurture, okay? If you weren't nurtured well, okay, then this is what happens. And we don't need to blame your parents because most parents were doing the best they could with what they had or what they knew and so forth. But we want to understand how it impacted us. And so I do give them information in in ways that they understand. I don't necessarily get into, well, you know, the major histocompatibility, you know, you know, blah, blah, blah. You know, yeah. I, we don't need to get into, you know, the, the neuroscience, but we do, I do talk about, you know, caregiving and care receiving or caretaking and the importance, you know, of, of being the care receiver in relationships, because so often clients are still in these inappropriate dynamics, even with their parents, where they're caregiving their, their, their adult parents, and they don't know what it's like to be a care receiver in relationships. And we go back to the internal subjective neural templates that I mentioned is because, you know, if we received, you know, we'll say inconsistent parenting, you know, then what happens when, when we, if we received really, chronically absent, neglectful, abusive, shaming, you know, parenting, then we get what's called this, you know, it's called like marked nurture deprivation, but we get this template of hopelessness and helplessness. And, and the response to that, you know, is really, you know, uh, poor motivation and a sense of futility, okay, in life, which is we get in really, if we look at polyvagal, that's that collapse state, which is what's patterned in us. And then, you know, if we, I'm going to get a little brainy, but the nucleus incumbents and aren't releasing dopamine. So there's not that drive to, to motivate. It's not integrated into prefrontal cortex or the motor functioning parts of the, the, the brain because there wasn't the, 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 the needs weren't ever met. So then the, there's not a lot of motivation because there's not a lot of dopamine and there's, you know, so there's just this absence. So there's in the collapse state a lot. And so that's the template. And so we have to work with that template you know, that, that people come from. Now, the good news is we can create a new template over time. Thank, you know, thank neuroplasticity for yes, that. Yeah. Okay. That's the hope of our field is that neuroplasticity is a thing. <laughs> we'll talk about the, the question is what we do about it, because that, that's, I think, an important question. Well, yeah, I think it's that neuroplasticity yeah, that neuroplasticity is a thing and that it's experience dependent. So there you go. Absolutely. Exactly. Exactly. Now, now with inconsistent parenting or, or nurture, you can have inconsistent, you know, where, where there was, you know, neglect, you know, trauma, you know, abuse and, and so forth. But there was some, you know, caregiving there, which was really an intermittent reinforcement situation. And so what happens with that is we have a, you know, internal subjective neural template of anxiety and fear a lot because there is, you know, sometimes the parents were there, sometimes they weren't, and we can put it into, you know, uh, attachment styles, that paradigm, but I'm looking at it a little bit different here, yeah. but because the nucleus incumbents, they were releasing dopamine. 
and there was a high with dopamine being the primary neurotransmitter and norepinephrine being the second. So there, mm-hmm. it's a high motivation situation, but not a lot of fulfillment and, you know, with that internalized and, and more, you know, that fear and, and even anger at times internalized because the, 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 you know, prefrontal, it goes to the thalamus to the amygdala and internalizes that. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's very powerful approach behaviors. And, and often what you'll find is because there wasn't consistent connection and there's all that anxiety and fear that what these, you know, growing up in that environment is the kids learn to attune to their parents and they become the caregivers of their parents Mm -hmm. because their parents are so inconsistent. So they get connection through caregiving rather than care receiving that caretaking. And so they're really good at being caregivers for others. And they, and, and this is how I learned to navigate relationships. So they've, you've probably seen these a lot. And so they're caregiving everybody around them and they don't know how to receive care. They don't, you know, they, they, and when they do, they get really uncomfortable, but that's this other template. So we got these two templates, but they're both ripe to, for, for chronic pain and chronic health syndrome states mm-hmm. because they're always activated. You know, one is in the collapse state, one is in, yeah, it's exactly. Yeah. And with that's that stress re- Mm-hmm. Sorry, that's how that's how we we talk about it in one of our trainings. Is that um, these we ca- we call it the creativity of the nervous system, um, but that the strategies developed in the kind of human conundrum of trying to receive care and connection, uh, connection in safety, like all of those things being variable throughout the li- lived experience of mammals, that those strategies have uh, psychoneurophysiological. Uh, processes that seek to insulate and perpetuate them and those themselves have consequences and those consequences are what like in our language would be what it sounds like you're saying in these syndrome states and their uh the sort of the byproducts or the after effects um neurophysiologically well and i you know i can't help but thinking too another concept that you know we've talked a lot about and kind of been exploring a lot lately is the, um, the body and the nervous systems drive towards homeostasis, that whatever our original templates were, there is sort of this underlying drive to maintain that way of being, because this is the way that our nervous system has, number one, been wired originally, but also this is the, the template that it has the most evidence um, of working, right? I'm here, I have survived, and therefore I have evidence that this is a good way of being. And so even when it's maladaptive in some way, even when there's a a high price that we pay for maintaining that template, our systems will choose to uh, move towards homeostasis as a method of sustaining survival, even when the need for it has long gone, where we still constantly move towards homeostasis. And that's one of the barriers to change that we face uh, with our clients a lot is that their bodies are are driving towards maintaining the same. Um, and so that invitation to change can be a hard one to accept. And to take that a step further, to realize that's interoception. Yes. yes, yes. That's not a conscious decision that's being made. No, yeah. All this, you know, stored information in the body, and that's what's driving. And so when we have this mismatch from the external world, that's, you know, top down, the bottom up is going to win. Yes. Okay. Hands down. And, and so what... Sorry, go so ahead. What, what we need to do now, especially as EMDR therapists, and, and, and this is where we get, I think, stuck as EMDR therapists, mm-hmm. where we just want to process trauma. 
in, in the same ways that we always have, okay? And this is where I start to get into my new stuff, okay? Is that we have to use really, you know, uh, this simultaneous model where we're, 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 we do have to process the old trauma, those maladaptive memories and traumatic experiences, but we have to do it in a way where we're, we're creating at the same time, new states, new interrogative states. And it's not just a state shift, but we have to straddle both nervous system states. Okay, mm -hmm. we'll, we'll, we'll talk, you know, when we get into polyvagal, well, we're talking polyvagal right now, we have to be able to be in that state of, you know, I call it connection and protection, where they're feeling that in while they're processing these old, Okay, and, and they say, well, people say, well, how can you do that? Because the nervous system is able to do that. We do that yes. all the time without realizing. That's memory reconsolidation, what you're talking about right there. Yeah. Well, yeah, we create a new state while we process the old state. That's right. At the very same time, separately, but simultaneously. Yeah. And we need to do it in a more robust way, okay, with the MDR. We, we already are doing it. We're taught to do it to a certain degree with the MDR. You're, you're, you're here with me now. You're safe. Notice you're safe now while you're processing the target. But we have to do it more robustly with these really ingrained, you know, sub, you know these template systems, especially when we have this all this attachment trauma or these chronic pain states or these health systems. Because otherwise you don't get a, that, that, that deep processing going on. They get stuck there and they spin or it takes forever. Yeah. One of the ways that I help um, kind of my clients understand this is just by pointing at the neurobiology of sensory processing in the, in the brain. You know, these, these primary processes are, are activating in 50 millisecond increments and then these top tertiary processes, five, 600 milliseconds. I mean, 10 to one. <laughs> so you're, you're getting affective firings that are so much faster in those in those lower parts of the brain and therefore create much more provocative and direct stimuli in the body than do these uh, kind of top-down processes that we would think we should just be able to think and change the way we feel or think and change the way we behave absolutely and so and this is where we start again combining these multimodal theories at once okay yes. so one is how we do it with you know what, I, what I, you know doing some resourcing with attachment based soothing and i have different you know types of uh, you know protocols for that using you know attachment based interweaves and I'll, with my my new training that i'll be launching will be you know a new protocol um, you know it's called the interoceptive self shift protocol which is doing that but also and this is where i'm gonna you know give praise to alan shore but using his as right brain should. psychotherapy yes as we should that's everybody right. should 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 praise alan shore but using his right brain psychotherapy model yes by, that's beautiful as we're as the emdr clinician to be able to synchronize our right brain with our client's right brain while doing EMDR therapy. I mean, that is so important to, to, yes. to, to know what it is, know how to do it and practice it and get good at it. It's because necessary. All, yes, we can't be left brain therapists. Right. Mm. Oh, preach it. Come Thank on, Gary. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, because and so often we are taught to do EMDR in this mechanistic way, just follow the protocol, count the sets, you know, and then, then stop. And, and, and that is going to be so hard to shift people out of these interoceptive states 
of you know hopelessness and helplessness or anxiety and fear because they're going to be left alone in that experience and and and, and they won't have that ability to shift into these states of felt safety and security in the moment right now where they need to, to straddle both systems of you know collapse or or you know sympathetic arousal and be in that social engagement system is where they need to be while they're processing because they never had that and that's really what self-soothing is yeah is where you're in it with them and they're able to use that co-regulation to self-soothe and have a new reorganization of that old experience to create a new old experience yes soothing is actually internalized co-regulation it is a memory of co-regulation that's being activated in our body in the present moment and so if our Go ahead. Go ahead. I say if they don't have that memory, right. we need to create one. That's right. Tons of resourcing. Yes. Yeah. And and so much of the time, like when we're doing consultation with people, and you know they're asking for you know, well, if they're showing up this way, then what specific resource do we need to install? And I understand that question and the heart of the question, but so much of the time, I want to say it doesn't matter what resource you install. What matters is that you are installing a resource and the way that they feel in the process of doing that with you, the way that you're showing up with them, that they are having a co-regulated moment with you and they're able to do that because you're guiding them through this focused process of activating a, a, a positive state, um, a ventral vagal state in their body while they're in your presence, that whole experience is giving them the new template. So it hardly matters exactly what resource it is if you're doing it in that way. Um, and to me, that really kind of expands our understanding of what is resourcing really about? Mm-hmm. Because I think in the basic training, so much of the time we're taught that resourcing is here hand them these set of tools so that they can Nurturing use them later will always work yeah and you know be able to contain be able to self-soothe and use these tools appropriately and resourcing is actually about that internalized co-regulation so that eventually they can um, create a sensation of self-regulation by recalling that in their body not cognitively and intellectually but being able to activate that state of calm in their body that they experienced with you in that moment or that they're remembering from previous previous times in their life and uh, more connected to because of that resourcing experience. And that just like, for me, busts wide open uh, the process of resourcing with our clients in a really exciting way. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Well, and that's, we're, we're, put, we're building on the body's organic processes of uh, affect regulation. Just as we were talking about in the beginning of this conversation, we learn that through relationship. Therefore, the hope of psychotherapy is relationship. And, and present moment experience. That's right. It's exactly. It's not talking about what did happen or what could happen. It's about experiencing what is happening in the room right now. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Yes. Which is so different than how most of us are trained. <laughs> At least me. <laughs> but I'm so encouraged by the the amount of clinicians that I'm able to interact with that seem to be moving towards this or are already there um, that that think this way, relational psychotherapy, um, right brain to right brain, whatever um, kind of terminology you're wanting to use, but that uh, this is the hope. And that to me is just building on all of what we've seen from these meta-analyses looking at the efficacy of mental health treatments. It's about the relationship and it always has been. Mm-hmm. You can do whatever you want, but it's about the relationship. 
We're coming full circle back to Carl Rogers, right? Yes. Okay, yeah, okay. So he knew it, but he didn't have the science. That's right. Now we have. Now it's uh, Rogers plus neuroscience. That's great. That feels great to me. Very safe ground there. <laughs> right. Yes. Oh. Exactly. Well, okay. So just for the sake of time, because I think we've been going about an hour and it barely feels like enough at all. Um, and hopefully Gary, if you're willing, I would love for you to come back, um, after your next training is complete and kind of share more in depth about some of the research that you've been doing on, um, attachment in the body. And, and yeah, to, I'm very excited I don't know to if you've picked up on this, but we have very similar research agendas we do. <laughs> and have been churning out a lot of the same material. I appreciate every, everything you're all saying. Yes. yes. Yeah. Likewise. It's fun to talk to people that kind of think in, and in can run this ways. fast yes, together. Yeah, this we, is we so good. We don't have to hold back. It's nice. Um, but I, I do want to give you an opportunity to kind of share with our listeners um, where they can get connected with you, uh, what kind of trainings you have coming up, where could they find your trainings and get registered, all of that kind of logistical information to make sure that they can get connected with you and your work. Sure. Um, <laughs> you know, right now, actually, I, I, I don't have a training scheduled just because, you know, we got the Emdria conference coming up in, in November. I, I will be actually presenting on Sunday, November 14th, on the afternoon at Emdria Conference. Um, on this that, pain protocol or on your new training? Um, it's actually, it's a, it's, it's, it's a shortened version of my new training. It's, it's um, okay. integrating the attachment system and AIP model for chronic health syndromes. That's the cool. of that. Yeah, Can't so wait. Yeah, so that will be a, a three hour discussion on that. And it's kind of nice because I'm not getting into the new protocol, that interoceptive self-shift protocol. Um, there was just not enough time with three hours. Gosh, it was hard enough to talk about within what I want to talk about in three hours. Um, so I'll be looking then and launching that new training, um, you know, Emdria being a little bit late this year, within middle of November, then the holidays, it's never good to launch a new training in the middle yes. of the holiday season. So come first of the year. Um, we'll first of the like year, yes. Yes, and, and it'll be on my website, um, you know, garybrotherscounseling.com. And then I'll also be continuing with, um, you know, my other training as well, um, you know, that's just working with uh, chronic pain and, and all the integrating, you know, EMDR with chronic pain and, and the whole model of care. I'll be offering that as well after the first of the year again, which um, I think is a good. The difference between the two is the, the, my first training, the one that I've been doing for a few years now, it really gives you an overview of you know, what's happening in the body with chronic pain and chronic health conditions, but it's more focused on, you know, chronic pain as a whole. Um, and, and also with what happens um, with chronic health conditions that cause chronic pain and, and looking at the neurobiology. And also it gets into teaching the, the pain protocol, which is invaluable, um, where the second training is really getting in to um, utilizing, um, you know, the attachment system and, um, modifying the, the therapy protocol with attachment focused interventions and, yeah. and, and that model and also kind of more how therapists to, to, to shift into, you know, that right brain psychotherapy. And yeah, with the intention of holding that, that right brain to right brain connection while processing that, that, yeah, past experience. Also give specific, um, you know, strategies and techniques for resourcing for also how to yeah. use the, and conceptualize the eight phases of that and beautiful yeah 
Okay, so if somebody wanted to get connected with you and get more information, your website is the best option, GaryBrothersCounseling.com? Yeah, yeah and, yeah, and there's ways to connect to me through my website Wonderful. as well. Okay, all right. Any final thoughts or questions, you guys? This has been yeah. lovely. I mean, really appreciate so many it. more ideas yeah. I'd like to just discuss. Um, but, At length for hours. <laughs> yes, but I, I hope that for the listeners this has been um, something that seems uh kind of right in line with what we're we're, we've been talking about on the podcast and uh feels very uh supportive in giving language to what we know works Mm -hmm. um and and that there is that there are trainings out there that are doing uh the work of the how-to that so many of the consultees that we work with ask for you know we, we do a lot of trainings on the theory of why um but there are then so many trainings that we point to to say this is one that does the why of what we're really wanting Wanting to do and Gary that's that's a training that we that we believe in and I cannot wait to, to review your second training as well yeah. um, um, to see the synthesis there um, that's that's kind of my passion in this in this world is <laughs> theoretical synthesis so um, but thank you so much for your time Gary it was yes. a treat to talk thank you so much for having me yeah, and I, 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 I do want to mention just one thing to everybody is that people can heal and get better from these conditions. And that's, that's so important to keep in mind. Yeah. Well, and you know, all of our listeners have uh, um, already heard me tell this story, but just as a little fun closer, I am one of those humans. Um, So yeah, my history was a subfertility and PCOS and couldn't get pregnant for three and a half years and had a round of EMDR and was pregnant within two months. So you were right. Congratulations. I know. It's wonderful. wonderful. Yay. So yes, we absolutely know that and believe that, that the body wants to heal when it's provided with safety and the right kind of attunement. And uh, EMDR is a great help to that, but also really understanding what right brain to right brain therapy is all about is another huge piece of that puzzle. So thank you for uh, being with us in the advocacy of that kind of therapy, because we talk about it a lot. All right, guys. Awesome people. I appreciate it. Yeah, too. Thank you so much for this conversation. Yeah, Gary, we will talk again. Yes, I I, I know it. Yes. (laughs) All right. Well, thank you guys so much for listening and being with us for this hour. And we hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. I think it was obvious how enthusiastic we all were about getting to have this conversation. And we will talk to you all soon. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to Notice That, an EMDR podcast. We hope something you've heard today will help you help your clients. Find our latest episode and more on our Facebook page or on our website, emdr-podcast.com. And don't forget to add us to your RSS feed or follow us on iTunes, Spotify, or Stitcher so that you don't miss an episode. Please email questions and comments to notice that at emdr-podcast.com. From all of us here at Notice That, see you next time.